and we are going to dive into our message this morning. Um, the scripture lesson is from Colossians, and it's Colossians 2, 16 to 23, um, but before we get into that, I'm just kind of doing a little bit more, I'm going to do this for a couple of weeks probably, impromptu heads up on uh, what we're beginning to do in, uh, on rally day this year as far as the Revelation Bible study. So, um, I don't want to do it after the, the scripture because I want to talk for just a second about it. This is going to be an awesome year. I know a lot of people are excited about going through the book of Revelation. Um, some people think it's intimidating. Some people think, man, there's so many weird things in here. It really isn't, I promise you. It's, it's only intimidating because there's a lot of voices out there on TV or, or other places, these evangelists, who are saying weird things about it. The actual book itself is not all that complicated to understand, um, especially when you understand it the way people have always understood it. We're, we're going to be quoting commentaries from the, the second and third century meaning not that long after Jesus died, people were writing about the book of Revelation. So it's not too complicated, um, but I do want to acknowledge I get it. It's, it's intimidating. The first time I, I went through it, I was in high school, and I wasn't smart enough to be intimidated by it. I was just like, all right, there's this book at the end. Let's go through it. Um, and my teacher in high school walked us through it. So if you feel intimidated by it, I want you to know that there's a couple of levels, uh, sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You want to just come on Sunday mornings and, and just hear it and the scriptures read and, and preached on? Awesome. You want to go a level up from that? Um, these books, we have a sign-up as you're leaving today, um, and you'll have a couple of days to do this. You can put your name down and say, I, I, you know, print your name and then say, I want one copy, or you know, we want two copies, or however many copies you want. In this book, I'm going to print, this is, I have a lot of editing to do still, but I'm basically done writing um, the key, right? So I'm going to shrink that down and stick it right on the inside, and that's got all of the, the important stuff, like what do the numbers in Revelation mean? The number three, triune God. So number three is for God. Four is creation. Um, I got some scripture quotes there. Seven, now we're talking about the God of creation because it's three plus four. So we're thinking of creation but divine creation or the God of creation. There's weird people to know like uh, the 24 elders. That's the Old Testament tribe and the New Testament apostles, meaning all of the people of God throughout history. The beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. What does 144,000 mean? Uh, what is this 42 month or 1,000 years? What about Armageddon? Uh, all of that cool stuff is, is going to be on that key, stuck in the front. I'm thinking in the back, we will have maybe an outline of the book, but what's really cool about it is places to take notes. So you bring this on a Sunday morning, and you want to just listen to the sermon, take some notes on whatever we're talking about, that's good. Next level is Wednesday nights. Wednesday night, we're going to go more in depth. There's a few chunks of Revelation that we're not going to be able to get to just because I don't have enough Sundays um, or enough time to preach on all of it. So Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock. Uh, everybody meets here, and we'll have an opening and then just dive right into uh, the, the book of Revelation. You want to go yet another level in, I'm going to have workbooks also worked up um, from primarily the commentary I'm working through. Uh, it's obviously, again, needs 
a cover page and editing, but I'm at 17 pages uh, of reading that would also be helpful if you want. How deep do you want to go? How, how serious um, would you like to study the book of Revelation? It is up to you. Either way, it is going to be awesome. So um, signing up for these, by the way, uh, there is a cost to this. It's $5 for, for all of this. And if you're thinking to yourself, um, really, you want to charge $5 to cover the cost? It's actually more than that. Um, $5 doesn't cover the total cost, but I just know that there's some some personal psychological aspect to skin in the game, right? Um, if, if you pay $5, you're more likely to remember this thing you paid $5 for, and you'll bring it on Sunday, or you'll show up on Wednesday evening. So um, if you really, really think $5 is too much, I don't, don't give me $5, that's fine. <laughs> but sign up for these. Uh, the sign up will be in the back on the way out. Um, I just want to know how many need to order, is what it boils down to. So. Now, let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Again, that starts September 11th, so you have some time, but not forever. All right, Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 23. This is Paul's letter uh, to the church in Colosse. Um, We believe he didn't start this church personally, probably somebody he met in his missionary journeys uh, that, that came to faith and was at a church, started this church, and then he sent letters. Um, and so this is one of those letters that he sent, and he's speaking to their then like really young Christians, new to the faith, and here's what he wants them to know. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, we are talking today about those who seek to judge you. Uh, it's a little bit different than texts that we use to talk about us not judging others. And it's a very different sermon, (laughs) except in one small regard, which we'll get to in just a minute. But first, I just want to talk about this. The, the, The people that seek to judge us, especially as Christians, are doing what I think we could all maybe agree on this phrase that I heard it a lot growing up and in my time. They're majoring in the minors. They're making a big deal out of the small things. 
In our text this morning, Paul is specifically talking about uh, the Jewish community and others who are sort of quasi-Christian, not, not fully in the faith yet, and they find these Christians in a place like Colos or, or like Waukee or Clive or West Des Moines. They find these Christians and they go, ah, well, Christians really aren't supposed to blank. Now, in his time, a lot of these were, were Christians who were uh, Jewish, but then converted to Christianity and go, but I, you're not supposed to eat that. Because God's people, the Israelites, were told in the Old Testament, you're not supposed to eat that. Well, we know in New Testament times that, that P- Peter had this vision at Cornelius' house, and all of these things were said to be clean, and that the dietary restrictions are opened up, and all of a sudden they can eat what they want to eat, and there's a whole bunch of really cool theology behind why that is um, that we don't have time for today, but this freedom of the gospel is opened up that, that you can eat all of these different things. That, that you aren't required to, to observe Sabbath, as in Saturday, seventh day of the week. You're not required to do all of these Old Testament rules and regulations. Those requirements are gone. These young Christians in this, in this place are now hearing from outside people going, no, 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 you still can't, or you have to. And those rules and regulations, we just kind of lump together and use a word to describe all of that. That's the law. And they're, they're again, majoring in these minor things that, that Christians should or shouldn't do without realizing that the things that Christians do or don't do is quite literally the least significant part of what it means to be a Christian the least significant part. Not, not that it's tacked on on the end or something. It's not what I'm doing like this. I'm just saying it's, it's small. The bigger piece has to do with our relationship with God and our heart, what we believe. This is the, the proclamation of, of Jesus, that it is not what, what you put into your body, whether it's pork or whatever else they're not supposed to eat, shellfish and that kind of stuff. It's literally what comes out of your heart. It's from the inside. It's a cleansing of the heart that causes us to, to be a different thing. And, and behavior, that, that's, a, that's a whole other conversation. We'll get to that. Even today, we'll get to that a little bit. But when you're talking about being judged, it's almost always, always somebody coming up to a Christian and saying, listen, (laughs) you say you're a Christian, but you still or you don't. And and Christians sometimes are the worst at doing this. We think this is probably going to be somebody who is uh, an, an atheist saying to us, I thought Christians couldn't, and I thought Christians have to, and I thought this and this, and, and judging us in that regard. But oftentimes it's one church to another church, or one denomination to another denomination, or just two Christians who really have something else going on. Right? They don't like each other for other reasons. And they go, well, you're not a very good Christian because you didn't do this, or you acted like that. That's majoring in the minors. And it's honestly, it's not helpful. But 
the first, first thing to learn about dealing with those who are judging you is what the text says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you doesn't mean that you punch them in the mouth, <laughs> right? Because now they can't pass judgment on you. If you can't move your mouth, you can't tell me I'm a bad person, right? <laughs> if you're unconscious, then you can't judge me. Remember Blues Brothers? You're going to look funny trying to eat corn with no teeth, right? Like there's, if, if I can shut you up physically, then you can't, that's not what the scripture means. I think we all know that. It's also not saying that no one judge you, let no one judge you, meaning win the argument, get in a debate. And that's just verbal violence, right? Sometimes I actually think that that verbal violence is worse than the physical violence that, that we see sometimes. I, I tell you what, that old phrase, and I've said it before, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What utter nonsense. <laughs> what hurts our kids the most? Falling off a bike and a scraped knee, or the words of a friend, a parent, or a sibling that mocks or cuts or gives them emotional trauma. I'll take the skin knee every single day, right? So this is not, not beat them up physically. It's not beat them up verbally. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in these questions. It's up to you to not let them pass judgment on you, meaning it's you who isn't receiving the judgment. Because you're still going to do it, right? As long as there is sin in this world, as, as long as, as there are people who have a, a spirit of, of evil in their lives and, and don't believe in Jesus and all of that, and as long as there are Christians who are still sinners, meaning they're not dead yet, Right? As long as there's still sinners in this world, they're going to pass judgment. They're going to make that attempt, but the judgments that we don't allow is simply we don't, we don't bear it. We don't take it in. We don't listen to that voice that judges. Now, this is, like I was saying in the children's message, different than correction. Because <laughs> somebody can still say to you, yeah, that, that wasn't the right thing to do. And if, you're, if your heart is not hearing that in, in a voice of love, if you're not receiving that because somebody loves you or cares about you or cares about other people that love you, if you're not hearing it that way, but instead hearing it as though somebody is making a proclamation on who you are, then you're receiving the judgment. Because Jesus has, has paid for this sin. All judgment has been placed on him. We have a mediator in Jesus. The, the book of Hebrews is, is brilliant on this point, but we're going to hit it a lot in Revelation too. Jesus is in heaven right now, and he is speaking on our behalf to the Father. He is in heaven right now, not just defending us, but saying essentially, yeah, I did that, but also I paid for that. Oh, you did that too, but I paid for that too. See, the judgment is gone. The, the sin remains. You still did something. Maybe you shouldn't have been. Maybe you were kind of running your mouth, 
right? When, when your kid was playing football last year as a senior, hypothetically, of course, right? And you were running your mouth. Um, maybe. And maybe that was something you shouldn't do. But the judgment for that, for that sin, has been paid for on the cross. It's finished. You can learn from that and say, that wasn't a good witness to other people. It wasn't a good thing for me to do when I did that thing because it hurt my spouse or, or my kids or my parents or whomever it hurt. I shouldn't do that thing. But no one understand, no one understand that it is from a place of love that God wants us to be corrected. Not judgment. Judgment's done. It's over. It is finished literally when he says it is finished. Judgment goes at who you are, not what you do. And who you are is a child marked with grace, baptized in the waters of grace. His work on you is full and it is complete. You're not mostly a child of God or almost a child of God. You are 100% children of the risen Lord. And he loves you. In the same way, I will correct my kids when they do things they shouldn't do, but I will never do it in a, in a place of anger or hatred or judgment, but in a place of correction and do better for the benefit of others and yourself. In the same way, God does not put any judgment on you. He loves you. And to think otherwise coined a phrase last week, I'm going to try and coin a phrase this week too, is toxic grace. We talk a lot in this church about toxic charity. It's been on my mind a lot lately because I've had members of our church read this book and just be like, this makes so much sense. <laughs> and and, and I, I love that, that moment. I go, I know, that's why we make you read it <laughs> to go on a mission trip. And that's why we encourage people to read it because it just makes so much sense. Toxic charity is that kind of charity that sort of at its core dehumanizes somebody. Like nobody feels good when, when you have to beg for money and then you, you get it, right? You, you never feel good when you're out someplace and you go, man, I can't afford that. And somebody goes, uh, you know, I'll get it for you. Like, oh, jeez, doesn't feel good. It dehumanizes you. Toxic grace doesn't dehumanize. It de-deifies God. Toxic grace de-deifies God, meaning when, when somebody tries to put judgment on you, what they're essentially saying is you can't be saved unless you give God a hand doing it, right? You, you can't really have a relationship with him unless you do these things because he's not powerful enough. That's what you're really saying. And, and here's where I'm hoping this hits home for, for those of you who need it. The person who passes judgment on you the most is probably you. Every time you feel as though you are a failure, loser, unlovable, unworthy of God's grace, not holy enough, not lovely enough to be loved by him, whatever that is that you feel about yourself, that's toxic grace. Because you know, you know what the truth is. You know that he's done all of this, and frankly, you know he's powerful enough to make you holy, to make you worthy. 
It's not a terrible place to be in, in a place of toxic grace, but it's not the best. In a place of toxic grace, you, you realize that God loves you, sent his son to die for your sins, and you believe all of these things, but you're holding on to stuff of this world. You're holding on to the same judgment that other people are saying, yeah, God loves you, but you know what one of my least favorite phrases in the entire world, probably the most inaccurate, pseudo-theological garbage you can hear come from the face of another person or yourself, and if you've said this, I'm not sorry. (laughs) That is the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. (laughs) No, he doesn't. God helps those who help themselves, meaning he's requiring you to do something as if you couldn't quite do it or he couldn't quite do it on his own? You mean that God like, needs a co-signer for this loan of forgiveness because his credit's not good enough? Is, is that what we're saying? Like he's, He was really powerful when he created the universe and designed all of nature and physics, but man, he couldn't pull this thing off, which is to love you. That's what you're saying. When, when you say these things about yourself, you're de-deifying him. You're saying he's not all that great, not all that grand. You know, he's, he's like other people. No, he's not. <laughs> I, I understand that because in the world, it does make sense. In the world, in, in, a, in a place of charity, we do that exact sort of thing where it, when somebody invests, we invest and we encourage them to take responsibility for their actions because that's how the world works. But the way the world works is very different from the way the kingdom of God works, and we should be celebrating and rejoicing in that difference every day of our lives. People help those when other people help themselves. Good. God helps those, or rather he saves those who know that they are helpless, who recognize, yeah, I got nothing to offer you at all. I got nothing to give you, Lord. If you don't rescue me, if, if you don't do 100% of the work, I'm not going to be able to do 0.1%. I need all of God's grace and all of his forgiveness, nothing toxic about it, just this reaching down and rescuing and saving me and pulling me up out of the waters. And this is how scripture talks about it all over the place, um, but we do have it right here in our text Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to the regulations? I love this next part too. I don't think I have it on the screen, but do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't eat this, don't eat that, gotta do this, can't do that. All of these rules, these rules, it's even in quotes in scripture, try telling those things to a dead person. I just love that imagery. The, the imagery over and over again, if with Christ you died to those things, why are you acting like you're alive? When somebody brings that, that judgment to you, I like to have the picture in my head of, of a corpse laid out in the, in the corners, like a cold, sterile, stainless steel, dead person on a slab going, you really need to lose some weight. <laughs> They're dead. 
You know, you should exercise more and maybe you wouldn't have the heart attack or maybe you shouldn't do this and you wouldn't have, maybe you should have been more careful and then that wouldn't have happened. Maybe you should, they're already dead. What are they going to do to make themselves better? Scripture talks all the time about this, this concept that we die with Christ and dead people, dead people don't contribute anything to the process of anything. Living people make the attempt. Living people do make an attempt to be better, to work harder, to get my life together, to not do that anymore. Act nicer to other people. Let's, let's make a whole giant list of, of the law that, that living people can do that has no bearing on those who are dead with Christ. And it's got an appearance of being wise. But appearances are deceiving. Literally what our text says this morning. It says here right at the end, all of these things, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Yeah, they do look good. It does look good when we're nice, right? Good optics is what the politicians would say. It looks good when Christians do good things. People who are outside the church might see work that we do with, with Heartland and, and other uh, organizations. They may see these things and go, that's good that Christians do those things. But that's just the appearance of true wisdom. True wisdom is knowing there's nothing we can do to be rescued by him. And when somebody tells us we must or we shouldn't, or when we tell ourselves, I better or I better not, when we do that, we're abandoning true wisdom, which is just a trust in a God who rescues us, and we're trusting the appearance, the outward-looking good stuff. But appearances, while they're deceiving... They can be beneficial. It's okay if somebody, if somebody says, man, that, that thing you did was really cool for that person, and you have an opportunity to witness to them, but you better move it in the direction quickly of, yeah, but that's not what it is to be a Christian, and I'm not doing this for the appearances, and, I, and I'm not doing those good things or living this life because that's how I'm saved. So then why do we do these good things? The difference between the law and freedom in the gospel on appearance level is very deceiving because it's basically the same things. It's basically the same thing, but just with, in the same way as judgment is determined by the heart, correction versus judgment, being a slave to the law and having to feed the poor and having to work with people who are uh, less privileged than us and, and being kind and doing and not doing all of these things, it appears the same things that Christians are encouraged to do, but here it's from a heart of love. Why do I, why do, I do something nice for a neighbor or a friend or somebody in need? Well, because God loves them. Because I love them. Not because if I do or don't, there is some man in the sky holding judgment over us, keeping score somehow. 
No, that's, that's not Christianity. Ironically, <laughs> it's a lot of other Eastern religion stuff. Nobody's keeping score of how good we are and, and taking points off for when we make mistakes or throwing flags on the field and penalizing us. That's, that's not what God is doing. What he's doing is encouraging us to, to work from a place of love, to give others grace and compassion the same way he gives to us. So in the same way, we don't receive judgment from people in the world. We don't receive judgment from ourselves because we don't receive judgment for God. In the same way, we don't judge others when they judge us. We might correct them. We might, we might say, you know, if you love this person, do this. Or if, if you want your life to be easier or more in line with God's will, do that. Or stop doing this. These are words of correction, not of judgment when they come from our mouths. Because we realize you're in the same essential position we are in, which is this place of being beggars. That they are just as, as broken and, and just as flawed and sinful as we are. And their heart needs to be regenerated. Not their actions, not their deeds, not, not what they do, where they go, all of those things. That, that doesn't need to be corrected for them to be a child of God. Their heart needs to be changed. And that comes from love and compassion and a desire for healing and mercy. That which God freely pours out that same, that same gift is literally not just the alternative to judgment, it's the antidote to judgment. When someone judges you, instead of returning that judgment, when you give them grace and love. Amen. May the peace which surpasses human understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you please stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for that gift of grace that you have given to me and that change of heart that you have given to me. And in those times and places when I do uh, act contrary to your word and your will, the mistakes that I make, when the people come to judge me or I seek to judge myself, I ask, Heavenly Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would remind me who I really am. Maybe changing my ways is good, but I am already loved by you, and there is no judgment, but rather mercy and forgiveness. Amen. May the peace which surpasses human understanding guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Amen.